exciting scandals of last time, this is David Beeson steering you into the rather calmer waters of Chapter 97 of History of England, though they're not a lot calmer. We finished last time with Castlereagh's suicide. That opened the door to his longtime rival, George Canning. You'll remember him as the young lad who'd shown such promise as the disciple of William Pitt the Younger. But then he'd resigned as a minister after his duel with Castlereagh, and had refused later to serve with him in government unless he headed it. He only came in from the cold at all in 1815, when he was appointed President of the Board of Control. That was the position through which Britain directed the affairs of the East India Company in British India. In 1820, however, he'd sided firmly with Queen Caroline in her noisy and ugly dispute with King George IV, the husband who'd wanted to divorce her. Ministers were the monarch's servants to a much greater extent then than they are now, so that put him in an invidious position. Once more, he resigned. Lord Liverpool, the Prime Minister, wanted him back. King George made it clear that he would only tolerate him in an office in which he, the king, would have no contact with him, Canning. It was decided to send him as Governor-General in India. After Castlereagh's suicide, however, Liverpool needed a new Foreign Secretary and a new leader of the House of Commons to deal with the government's affairs in that turbulent Chamber of Parliament. Liverpool himself, you'll remember, sat in the much more genteel House of Lords. We're reaching the end of the time when a monarch had much say over who a Prime Minister picked to serve in his government. George had to bite the bullet and accept Canning. In his new position, Canning faced a lot of urgent items, including one that had never been off the government's agenda for decades, thanks to the indefatigable campaigning of William Wilberforce. Slavery. Wilberforce hadn't been happy with the slow progress made towards abolishing the international slave trade everywhere. He was unhappier still with the discovery that, contrary to his stated hope, the abolition of the trade hadn't led to any improvement in the treatment of the existing slaves. He'd hoped that once there was no means of adding new slaves to the existing population, white owners might start to treat those they had rather better. But it wasn't happening, mainly because the populations, both in the West Indies and in continental America, North and South, were big enough to be self-sustaining. Wilberforce decided that it was no longer enough to work for an end to slave trading. Slavery itself had to be abolished. The abolition might be gradual, for example, certain American states, northern ones, decreed that any child of slaves born after a certain date would be free, but gradual or not, abolition had to come. By this time, Wilberforce wasn't a well man anymore. Indeed, in February 1825, he would step down from Parliament and leave the pursuit of the campaign to others, such as his long-standing partner Thomas Clarkson. It must have been a great comfort to him to see that Canning, a long-time supporter of the cause, was Foreign Secretary and working towards its success, not just from inside government, but from inside the Cabinet itself. Still, slavery was not the immediate priority facing the government. That was the still widespread and intense discontent and the radical movement it was propelling into increasing prominence. 
Indeed, there was growing antagonism in some radical circles towards Wilberforce, viewed as so focused on the suffering of the slaves that he failed to see how much his own compatriots, in crushing poverty though technically free, were suffering at home. Probably the most outspoken of Wilberforce's radical critics was William Cobbett. He could take positions that were frankly racist. Here he is in 1821. That the Negroes are a race of beings inferior to white men, I do not take upon me to assert. For black is as good a colour as white, and the baboon may, for anything I know or care, be higher in the scale of nature than man. And then Cobbett goes on. Certainly the Negroes are of a different sort from the whites, and for whites to mix with them is not a bit less odious than the mixing with those creatures which unjustly, apparently, we call beasts. It's an ugly assertion of apartheid long before there was a government of South Africa to adopt the policy of apartheid. To be fair to him, Cobbett later became a powerful supporter of the abolition of slavery. I hold all slavery in abhorrence, he declared in 1830, and elected to Parliament himself, he energetically backed the campaign there for abolition. Why, he even personally boycotted sugar, coffee and rum because their production depended on slave labour. To him, though, the abolitionists were hypocrites because they focused on the protection of people thousands of miles away and failed to see the hardship on their own doorstep. So, as early as 1808, he'd pointed out that if the thing can be, I shall be glad to see the blacks as free in every respect as the whites though just before he'd claimed that, I wish with all my heart that the labourers of Norfolk were as well-fed as the labourers of the West Indies, basing himself on the delusion that somehow slaves were well-fed. He loathed Wilberforce for being, in his view, so completely taken up with the rights of the slaves that he simply couldn't see the oppression of those Norfolk labourers and their kind throughout the kingdom. In 1823, he agreed with him that the killing of slaves is perfectly damnable, to be sure. This is tyranny. Here is horrible slavery. The tyrants ought to be stricken down by thunderbolts, or to be otherwise destroyed. However, he then went on to remind Wilberforce of the peaceful protesters attacked at Peterloo. But Wilberforce... Did you ever hear of a parcel of people who were assembled at Manchester on the 16th of August, 1819? These were persons whom you call free British labourers. They had committed no crimes or misdemeanour. About 500 of them were nevertheless killed or wounded. And pray, Wilberforce, was anybody punished for killing and wounding them? Were not those who committed the killing and wounding thanked for their good conduct on that occasion? Did you ever object to those thanks? Cobbett had grounds for his accusations. Wilberforce voted in Parliament against an investigation into the Peterloo deaths and even voted for the further repressive measures included in the six acts that we talked about last episode. Cobbett denounces the way Wilberforce campaigns only among the wealthy. You make your appeal in Piccadilly, London, amongst those who are wallowing in luxuries. You should have gone to the gravel pits and made your appeal to the wretched creatures with bits of sacks round their shoulders and with hay bands around their legs. What an insult it is, 
And what an unfeeling, what a cold-blooded hypocrite must he be that can send it forth. From Wilberforce's point of view, it's understandable that, ageing and ill as he was, he might have felt it was time to get out of the firing line of such aggression. More generally, though, Cobbett's anger reveals a changing atmosphere. He might be more extreme than most, but he reflected a growing mood for change and for ending the crushing poverty so many suffered in what was, by then, the wealthiest nation on earth in relation to its size. Government policy did nothing to relieve that poverty. Do you remember the bullion committee that Robert Peel had headed? It had recommended that Britain ought to follow the advice of men like the economist David Ricardo and restore the convertibility of the pound sterling into gold. The Liverpool government, also strongly inclined to this doctrine of sound currency, had adopted the proposal and convertibility had returned at the same rate as before the wars with France in 1821. Now here's a problem. It's called the trilemma, meaning a dilemma with three options, though with the nasty sting that you can never choose more than two out of the three. One, you can fix the value of your currency rather than letting it float freely responding to market conditions, as is the case today. Two, you can allow capital to flow in and out of your country without checks and controls on its movements. Three, you can take control of your monetary policy, increasing or reducing the money supply, the amount of money in circulation, and raising or lowering interest rates as you feel appropriate. By adopting convertibility in 1821, the Liverpool government had fixed the value of the currency. It also allowed free flow of capital. As a result, it had no control over interest rates or the money supply. The money supply with convertibility had to be kept in line with the country's gold reserves. Imagine how a government might respond to economic difficulties. It might want to cut interest rates to support investment by making credit more accessible. If it did that, however, gold would flow out of the country, because such flows were free, to somewhere else where the interest rate was higher. That would produce a better return on the capital. However, it would also deplete the nation's gold reserves that backed the currency. When the Bank of England was permitted to print currency with some freedom during the war and immediately afterwards, the result was inflation. The amount of money around was chasing about the same amount of goods, so prices rose. That's what inflation is. The thing about inflation is that it's great for borrowers. They borrow money today when it has a certain value, but what they pay back in the future costs them less, because in the interim, inflation has reduced the value of the money they have to reimburse. But with the money supply fixed, especially as it had to be reduced first to bring it into line with gold reserves, you get the opposite effect, deflation. There's too little money around, and the only way the same amount of goods can be sold is to reduce prices. That sounds good, since it meant poor people would have less to pay for what they consumed. Except that the reduced prices put an incentive on employers, whether in industry or in agriculture, to reduce wages to protect their profit margins, or to sack workers. Besides, the poor didn't consume many manufactured goods. They spent a large proportion of their income, such as it was, on food, and its price was being kept artificially high by the Corn Laws. High, but paradoxically, 
not high enough for the landowners who live from agriculture. During the war, with the pressure to increase food supplies, they'd brought marginal lands into cultivation. That's lands not generally regarded as financially worth working, but that land couldn't be farmed profitably unless prices were kept at wartime levels. The prices reached in the 1820s were already too high for many workers' pockets, but they weren't high enough to make farming marginal land profitable. That reduced both the food supply and the opportunities for agricultural work. What's more, the Corn Laws were a protectionist measure against foreign imports, specifically of grain. Inevitably, other nations responded with their own tariff barriers against British goods. This too then put a downward pressure on wages as employers faced with difficulties exporting their products tried to protect their earnings by cutting costs. Far from getting easier, things were getting tougher for wage earners. And that's if you had a wage, since the other way of cutting costs was to dismiss workers, which led to rising unemployment. No wonder men like Cobbett felt that as well as talking about the hardships of the real slaves in the British colonies, politicians in Britain needed to pay attention to the conditions faced by wage slaves at home. Free, technically but often free to cope with malnutrition and bad, insalubrious living conditions. The radicals were taking up their calls with increasing enthusiasm, and they increasingly felt that the only way to give that cause a real voice was to weaken the grip of the landowners on Parliament. Above all, it was to ensure that their interests too were represented there. In the latter days of Lord Liverpool's government, it was therefore a twin campaign that would dominate political developments for fairer representation in Parliament and against the Corn Laws. Reacting to these developments would be the making of many politicians. In particular, next week we'll be once more tracking the fine career of a man who emerged as a reformer, despite later becoming Britain's first official Conservative, Robert Peel. Plenty to look forward to. And in the meantime, why not tune into our companion podcast, Who the Hell is Norfolk? That's the place to get a light-hearted approach to many of the issues we're talking about here, and to fill in some of the context that I left out. Enjoy it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 